Wild Research Bites, which is brought to you by Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. Today's episode is going to be really interesting. I and Emily, we're going to interview two of my friends from South Africa, Lawrence Stein and Phoebe Motram, about their experiences in the conservation arena of South Africa. And their training was to become safari guides in South African national parks and private reserves. And we're going to talk about their experiences of conservation and being as a guide. Yeah, welcome both of you. And let's hope the internet will work with this online podcast recording. So maybe just to kick off the episode, can you, Phoebe and Lawrence, maybe tell something about yourself, where you're from, and how did you become interested in conservation in the first place? Okay, I will start. Um, so I was born and raised in the UK on a farm of sorts, more like a small holding, so lots of wildlife and animals around me. Um, followed the usual path, went and did geography at university straight out of school, and then was like, now nah, I'm over the UK, I want to go somewhere cooler, um, and ended up working on a dolphin research project in Namibia, which just like changed my world. Um, and I made Southern Africa my home. Um, and then I decided to go and train as a safari guide, field guide, I guess you'd call it. Um, and that was where I met Lawrence. And since that point, my life has basically been full of a combination of biodiversity conservation and tourism. Um, I worked as a guide in Namibia for a while, working overland tours, which was very, very cool, but also very exhausting. Um, and then I guess my most recent work in biodiversity conservation was my wild dog research which was amazing and I love wild dogs now and can't wait to get back out and see some more. And then, yeah, as for myself, it's, um, it's not necessarily as formal as Phoebe's. Uh, to start, basically, my family has been pretty connected with uh, the African bushveld for, for maybe coming up to three generations if you include my, myself in it. And that means, yeah, I've, I've, since, since I was in nappies, I've been involved in the bushveld. Um, to give you a bit of a background, my grandfather Hulk was one of the founding members uh, of the Tuli Game Reserve in the southeastern corner of Botswana. And that's kind of where my passion for the bush really started. I spent pretty much every waking moment that I could going up to the farm and getting to know the area a bit more. And um, after doing um, some generic um, BCom degree, uh, I decided that my life was kind of missing that element. Um, and I ended up doing my field guides course, and that's odd enough where Phoebe and I met, um, just after she came back from Namibia. So it was quite a quite a nice coincidence to see someone who's also come from an environment where they, she wasn't exactly happy with that place and decided to move somewhere else. So I, I figured, well, if she can do it, you know, at least we there's a good opportunity for others to do the same sort of thing. And yeah, uh, that, that kind of led to the, the spiral that it is now. I, I don't have the formal qualifications, like I said, where it's more of a university level thing, but because there's been a couple of generations in the bush, um, it means I get to get my hands involved in parts of conservation that not many people really get to do. So I get to spend time um, helping out the Sam Parks uh, uh, Census Counts. Phoebe actually was involved in that too, as well as helping out for um, the Pilansburg, um rhino relocation and rhino um, monitoring. I can't really go too much into that, obviously. 
and then obviously spending time with you Ali like when you were doing your um, research and your thesis and I was able to come help out and that that sort of thing so that, that that's where I kind of tie in in terms of the the formal side of things I kind of the lackey really to just help out where, wherever the hands are needed but for a background that's basically about it that's really amazing just uh, also thought how you guys met uh, I guess it's South Africa somewhere but uh, so yeah. you helped Ollie with field work with yes. all the digging of the holes or <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Um, soil samples um, my hands have still got blisters from doing that <laughs> how was yeah. that experience for you um it was it was really nice I'm not a fan of ticks I mean I yeah it's they're probably one of the only animal, only creatures that really just don't want around me so doing it working that project with Ollie was in Kuklui which is basically the land of the tick um so it was it was very interesting but the actual work itself was quite cool it's nice to see Ollie working out in in a familiar landscape for myself. Very unfamiliar to see someone like Ollie's background in, in an area like that, but yet he was so comfortable. So it was quite nice to see. Yeah, so just to give some background, I was doing my field work in South Africa in Fushlua in Pelosi Park, and I really needed some people to help me to take all those soil samples. So Lawrence volunteered and uh, helped me out a lot. So there's some videos about us working, trying to dig holes into the ever so tough soil of Shushlue in the heat of 30 degrees Celsius at least. And that was only 7 a.m., I think. So it was very, very interesting. But without the help that I got, I could not have done all those samples. We have the, the Field Bites uh, series that Oli made from his field work too, if you want to listen to more, um, more of stuff from there. Yeah, and I broadcast it from South Africa. And then, yeah, what about your training itself, uh, field, field guide training? Uh, Phoebe, how did you decide to go there? Did you hear about the training from a friend or did you read about it online? Good question. Um, do you know, I think it took me like six months to actually decide on the course that I wanted to do. Um, I kind of like, I was... I went to like, I guess you'd call it the bush. It wasn't really the bush. It was like a reserve in Namibia. And that was probably one of my first like solid wildlife experiences in Southern Africa. And then I realized, oh, wait, I can actually do this as a job if I want. Um, so I need to go and like, get the course. And I like asked around a few guys and they all kept recommending this one company. Um, so that was how I decided to go with them. Um, they were super helpful actually because like as my usual life with visas in South Africa goes I like I found the perfect course it was going to be amazing and then I realized my visa ran out like two weeks before the course ended and I was like please can I do this course and they were like yeah sure we'll just like move a few things around so you can get everything done in a smaller amount of time which was amazing um, and they literally like I had like at the end of the course I had to like drive to the airport get on a plane and leave the country so I wasn't going to get banned um, but it was such an amazing experience. I actually don't think I knew what to expect when I got there. I was definitely very, very, very intimidated. Like Lawrence rocks up having spent most of his childhood in the bush and I rock up and I'm like, I don't even know. There's like this little Impala thing walking past, which obviously now I know is an Impala. 
but at the time I was like, what the hell is that? And everyone's just like, whatever, it's just a deer, it just walked fast. And I was so fascinated, but also so intimidated because I knew nothing. And it was the most life-changing, what is it, like 50 days? Mm. 50 days of, yeah, of the last few years, definitely. Yeah. Lawrence probably had a completely different experience of it, but for it's me, not, yeah, not, it was far off. very, very positive. Yeah. And what is the training about? What do you learn in the course? Everything. Well, to to elaborate on that, it's it's dependent on what you study. Obviously, I mean it's the same in any any situation. But basically, the course that we started out on is um, called your level one. So it's an introduction into the bush, and then it teaches you how to host or create a guided experience for customer or clientele or in in the bush the definition for those individuals is a guest so it's it talks about creating and curating an experience for a guest and how you go about that and how you're also able to convey knowledge to these people so it's a little bit it's a little bit through the bush but it's also a lot to do with your client relationship and being able to facilitate a healthy relationship towards the bush with them and that was what phoebe and i found ourselves on so we we did it the level one course that was done by this particular training agency was two months. Um, Phoebe's was a little bit shorter <laughs> because she, she literally rushed out. She was like one of the first people to, to do her test because she was leaving that same day. Um, but basically in that course, what it captures is the very, very basics and fundamentals of the bush. So very, very entry level tree identification, bird identification, animal so your your fauna identification as well as flora to surmise that a bit um as well as also understanding certain tracks and interpreting signs and then doing a couple basic things like spending a couple days out in the bush or walking just getting a feel for being outside of a vehicle and being exposed but it's not a trails based thing it's mainly about the vehicle so you learn about facilitating in a vehicle what kind of um like uh what do you call them? Pre, prerequisite? No, like, uh, uh, did you have to have any kind of training or education to be able Absolutely. to enroll? Absolutely. You just had to have a first aid qualification. That was it. Um, well, actually, yeah. If you wanted, if you wanted to walk away with the Fagasa Level One for qualifi uh, qualification, which is the Field Guides Association of South Africa, and and they 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 are the guys who, um monitor these uh, tests and they give you the qualification if you pass it there are the only genuine prerequisites that you need is you should have if you want to practice within south africa have a professional driving license which being a non-resident of south africa can be quite challenging to get um and the other one is to have a first aid certificate level one minimum and with those two and a level one qualification from Fugasa, you can go straight into any any field or any lodge that accepts level one and start guiding straight away. But if you don't have the the PDP or the professional driving license, that means you may probably struggle to find work because you don't meet all the requirements 100%. But you can still do the level one course, even if you don't have that if you go to the right training facilities. So if you just want to get your knowledge, you can go and do it. No one will stop you. Cool. What about the um, follow-up education and the trails, trails guide uh, qualification? Does it follow up directly from uh, the field guide qualification? Or? 
Um, yeah, so you can just do trails as a standalone course, which I think would be very, very cool to do. Um, but they, it does kind of go one after the other. So you do your level one, or it's, it's got a new name now, but like everyone knows it as level one. Um, you do your level one, and that gives you the background knowledge. So you go from your mammals, birds, trees, astronomy, geology, whatever you want to learn. And then I think trails goes more into sort of interacting with the landscape and applying what you've learned. So we could learn on the level one course or the movements of an elephant and maybe what that means. And then you go and do trails and you're on foot and you come across an elephant. And then you've got to suddenly apply all of that knowledge. Um, and then also still interpret for guests, but maybe you'd get a different kind of guest. So the majority of people coming to um, be in the bush in Southern Africa are going to be in vehicles. And then you get like a small sect that actually want to walk and they're like a different breed of person. Um, best breed. The best breed. <laughs> of person. Um, so yeah, they, they kind of like go together pretty nicely, but I guess there's no harm in doing the trails course. So I guess, especially if you just want to like get that utterly unique experience of getting out into the bush and walking and actually learning, that would be amazing. But in terms of, sorry to interrupt you, but in, in terms of prerequisites, just to add to that, trails requires quite a lot more. So when you do your trails qualification, it's known as, uh, in terms of what you'd get at the end of it is a backup qualification, which means you have to have a minimum or set requirement of hours and signatures from your instructor who's teaching you. Uh, when we did it, it was 50 hours minimum with X amount of encounters, which I think it was 10 for us. Mm, 50 hours and 10 more, encounters. Yeah. It could be more, you know, it, it, the Fogasic requirements change quite a bit. But in, um, if you want to become an actual guide who can take guests and walk through the bush, you have to be a lead qualification. So a backup doesn't allow you to do that. A backup just means that you can walk with the lead and you have to work on your hours with that lead and they have to sign you off. And once you've done that, you have a further assessment to determine whether or not you can be a lead. So the requirements are a lot more intense, but that's because when you are on foot, you're interacting with animals, as Phoebe says, in a way that's also a lot more exposed. So you're putting yourself out there and you have to really understand animal behavior and track and sign not to get yourself into situations that could really, really compromise your safety as well as the groups. And that's why it requires a little bit more of an understanding of the bush. Makes yeah. sense. I think we can ask um, you guys for links to whatever you think is relevant for these courses yeah. and websites yes, or whatever. We can put it in the description of the episode. Yeah. Yes, yeah. for sure. sure. Sounds good. And then what about the uh, work as a guide itself? You probably come across with crazy situations and um, what are the do you have any examples that you can give us about situations of animal encounter, animal encounters in the bush? I'm going to hand over to Lawrence while I think. I'm going to have to work through my memory. You go first. So, Holly, that's a difficult question. Um, not difficult because I, I, I won't have an example to give you, but difficult because you tend to have quite a few. The bush is a fascinating place because every day you go out, something new can happen if you're open to it. 
you know, a crazy encounter doesn't have to be charged by a lion. It could be seeing something even minuscule that would just change your perspective a little bit of the bush. Um, so maybe if I had to uh, if I had to answer it, I have to ask you a question. What would what would be a definition of a crazy encounter for you? Maybe I can relate to that a bit. Yeah. So probably like what I was meaning in the questions in the original sense was about dangerous situations with animals such as buffalo or lion or elephant. But now that you also mentioned that there's many different kinds of encounters. Uh, for example, you can have an encounter with the bird that can be life-changing. You can see, especially if you're into birding and you see a rare bird in your uh, trails experience, then that can be also very, very empowering. But yeah, what about encounters with dangerous animals charging you? I mean, that's... Uh... It's a really fun to think about those things because, for example, for me, um, have, I've been uh, guiding in Sweden a little bit before I was a PhD student. And I mean, uh, encountering anything that's dangerous in Sweden is like uh, 0.0% uh, <laughs> or encountering anything at all is very uh, <laughs> unlikely. So, so it would be fun to hear. Well, to, to start, Anytime you're, you're on foot and you come across um, animals of the big five, which I don't really like using that term or phrase because there are other animals that are just as important, if not better, than the classic definition of the big five. But And maybe one or two outside of that big five group would be considered as a dangerous game encounter. So in terms of dangerous encounters, you can only count in trails the encounters that are considered dangerous as an encounter. So if you come across an elephant on foot within a certain amount of distance and you make a decision to approach that, that would be a definition of a dangerous game encounter. Um, and I know that's not exactly answering Ollie's question because I know what he's getting at. <laughs> um, but it's, it's worth stating that whenever you're on foot and you come across these animals and you get to experience it, it is deemed as a dangerous encounter and it, it can go wrong very quickly. And that's why you require to know these sorts of things. Um, I think one of the more, one of the more heart stopping moments for me was when I was walking with um, a lead guide um, in a five-star lodge in Waterberg. Uh, we were doing a trails there with a, with a big group of people and we had decided to go up a, up into a gorge it's it's a very very beautiful gorge it's a stunning walk it's about a six and a half seven hour trail walk and it's covering between 25 and 30 kilometers so it's a, it's a fair distance on very very uneven terrain known for its black rhino and um we started walking and we got we got into the entrance of this gorge and the entrance of the gorge has uh, yellow thatching grass so ollie you'd probably know all the the fancy terminology for it, I, I know the common names more than anything, but the grass was roughly head height and I'm about two meters tall. So it was about two meters, maybe a bit taller than that. So we, we had very limited visibility and our group had crossed over and we were a group of about seven people. So we crossed over the river and we were making our way into the gorge in this very thick grass, which is not a very advisable place to be, but there was no option in this situation. And we had to, we had to, 
uh, play play with the hand that we got dealt. So we started moving around, and the guest at the back had all of a sudden had a had a bit of a, a moment. She she had heard something, and I was the backup. Obviously, the lead was in the front, so it's my job to go and make sure that she's okay, while the lead ensures the rest of the safety of the group. So I quickly tell the lead that this is what's happened, and we within a couple of seconds had already made a uh, made a call to go and suss it out. So the lead was in the front, and I I walked to the back. As I got to the back, I heard a lot of this through the through the grass and I can see the grass in front of me like not even 15 or so meters ahead of me and the grass is just shaking and we had not obviously been able to see that because the grass has been so tall and whoever was behind that grass had obviously picked up on the scent and heard the noise and now was disturbed and the, the reaction was to fight or flight um, anyone who knows black rhino it's the former never the latter <laughs> fight is always on its mind um, and at that very second the rhino burst through the through the grass in front of me and it was maybe five or so meters in front of me i had a rifle in my hand but there were two thoughts that were running through my head the animals coming at me at such pace that even if i was able to put the rifle to my shoulder put it around in the chamber and shoot i probably wouldn't have done enough damage or hit in the right spots which is probably not the right call you know as a guy you're trained to make it a kind of a one shot last resort kind of vibe you don't ever want to have to put a rifle to your shoulder and if you do you better make sure that when you're shooting it's only going to be one shot if you can so i didn't have time and that's it in that sense but the other one was is who wants to be the guide who picks up a rifle and shoots a black rhino not in this day and age um so a lot of these were going through my heads but the safety obviously through my head sorry but the safety was obviously to keep uh, keep the group as a priority sorry my idea was to have safety at the first and foremost so I, I picked the rifle up and i had it there but before i was even able to draw the draw on the bolt the rhino had stopped about a meter in front of me and then just bolted to the to the side and ran off into the bush and it was this all had happened within three or four seconds so it was guest whistle we look at each other. The lead and I have a way of communicating without having to say much because we know each other. So he, the look was go back. I went back and Rhino came out. It was that fast. And it was very, very difficult to react into that situation. And thank, thankfully, the Rhino, the Rhino had gone the other way. I had obviously made sure that I was in front and whatever, whatever was going to come was going to hit me. But nevertheless, it was a very very scary situation and afterwards both the the league garden and myself were walking we could barely they call it jelly legs you can barely feel your legs underneath your feet we had to sit down for a good hour or so just to con console ourselves and maybe lick our wounds to say that we had missed that but um yeah that was that was definitely one of the more imprinted memories on my mind in terms of coming close to seeing what real danger is in the bush and funnily enough um, at a completely separate time, like, I don't know, weeks apart, I was also not charged, but tracked down by the set, very same rhino. Um, I was, rhino, the black rhinos are territorial, so you can kind of pick out which, like, where they will be. And um, I was walking with an amazing, amazing guide who now is based in Botswana, but we were in the same reserve. And we were walking and we kind of get it, like, we heard a little rustle, but it was nothing too much to be, like, concerned about. So we just walk up a little bit of the hill so we can look down and this rhino was like sniffing he was sniffing us out trying to figure out where the hell we were because that vision's not very good at all 
so they rely on all their other senses and we were like that thing was looking for us because they get so angry and he was like sniffing around so yeah that rhino's got a bit of a reputation that's crazy i mean yeah. <laughs> i don't know i've never experienced anything remotely like it i i worked for a whole summer alone with my dog in this forest in doing inventories um, in sweden and i was out for three months every day new places middle of the nowhere and i saw a moose once in the forest <laughs> uh, it was 40 meters away sleeping and it stand up and, and walked away yeah. um, well the thing is no matter how often you spend time in the bush like rule number one do not run because if you run away from any animal it wants to chase you and you just make the situation so much worse but it doesn't matter if you've done it hundreds of times or you've never done it before if you get charged trying to stop your body from turning around and running is one of the most difficult things mm. that you will ever do and it's just like all your instincts are screaming at you to run away from this thing and you just have to stand there and that is it's incredibly difficult yeah i can only imagine yeah the adrenaline pumping through your veins is uh, uh -huh. in such high concentrations yeah. that you just want to run you get the shakes mm. afterwards and, that, and yeah. that's why you go through the through the training particularly for trails i mean another aspect of those prerequisites as we were talking about earlier is you have to you have to learn how to use a rifle and not just not just use a rifle in a competent sense but use a rifle in situations that demand assessing that that threat and using it aptly and not just picking up the rifle and firing the hundred shots and hopefully it will stop. Um, it's a case of when you have nothing else, it is the final and only resort you have left. Then you pick that up and start using it. And when you use it, can you use it properly? And that's why you do the testing and the training. Standing your ground is, is probably the most fundamental thing when it comes to being in the bush. It's, um, it's it's the rule number one that everyone knows as phoebe says and if you if you learn to stand your ground you'll find that the encounters always change even if you get charged in that situation if i had run from that rhino that rhino would have flattened me and it would have taken out some of the members of the group too so that is definitely one of the most important things to remember is to combat your fight or flight and turn it into a third response which is freeze Reason stand your ground and breathe. Yeah. 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 What do you think is, uh, as a guide, your most important mission in terms of educating the uh, guests that you have? Or what's your approach to, what do you want to show them as a guide? That's such a good question. Every guide's different. Every, I mean, if, if another guide had to listen to this podcast right now, I'm sure there's going to be a varied opinion of what I've said and what they believe. And not everyone is going to agree with what I'm saying. And other people may find that they agree completely. It's subjective. And that, it, that comes from your belief as well as your teaching. So some guides will teach, you know, big five only this is the way it is and this is how they've experienced the bush therefore this is the way to go about it and if it works for them it's not wrong um but in the same regard somebody like myself i'm so far off that spectrum i don't really want to talk about the big animals i want to stop by the grass and talk to you about the soil composition or 
why the clouds are forming like that because there's been a dramatic increase in orographic lift because the way the wind's hitting the mountainside or maybe there's a particular bird species that we've just seen come through because the migration has come late or there's an interesting change that's happening at the moment and these animals are coming from areas that they're not supposed to come or come from and it's purely dependent on the individual and what they find resonates with them. And that's usually what you find is they'll teach. And again, like I said, it's a subjective environment. So what I find valuable will be completely different to what Phoebe, Phoebe does. And that also happens to be how your guests respond to it too. Not all guests are going to find what you have to say helpful or meaningful. And the whole principle of learning to facilitate this experience is to read the guests and to make it meaningful and impactful for them while still adding a little bit of your flair. But at the end of the day, like I said, it's a subjective thing. And I think for me, I've, I can see it from a really, I don't know, different perspective. So in the space of not many years at all, I've gone from being that tourist on their first sort of game drive not even knowing what I'm looking at to go into what you could think of as like the slight expert um, <clears throat> taking people out on those drives. And so for me, I always try and get across like the narrative that's going on behind that whole safari in quotes world, because I think far too many people go on a trip to the bush and expect to find this pristine wilderness where it's like Jurassic Park and everything's like overgrowing and there's just elephants everywhere and it's just heaven. And I really think nowadays it's so important to tell, to show people that it's more than just you drive around and you look at animals and then you go. Like you can actually learn so much from that week that you might be spending there and you can learn about where the research is heading right now, why the research is important, the major conflicts that are going on. Like I, I, I love to talk about like poaching, wildlife trade and human wildlife conflict and things like that. Generally you'll find that like lodges don't like you to sort of talk about things that may be considered bad for South Africa. So that doesn't always go down too well. Um, but I think that stuff is really important for people to learn that then that actually, they're not just taking away a sort of, essentially empty experience that it's actually a massive learning opportunity and like a, a thought changing opportunity and so I really like to try and focus on that as Lauren said often people don't want to know about that people do just want to come and drive around look at elephants and go drink gin and tonic and that's fine <laughs> but sometimes you can get through to like one or two people and then you've really had an effect yeah and yeah. what about what about Phoebe um You've been doing also some research on wild dogs and how do you see the role of research, this kind of research, fundamental research on, on wildlife? How do you see the role of this kind of research in conservation? And do you think it's important to also marry these concepts from uh, wildlife research into conservation and wildlife management? Mm, they are fantastic questions. Oh my God, that's amazing. Um, okay, cool. So I feel like research is incredibly important, but it can be taken a little bit too far. As in, 
it's real, especially now when resources are limited, I think it's really important that we focus our research into key areas that maybe are like black holes where there's literally no research gone on or sort of like focus points that like one research project could open up or provide massive amounts of information. I think there's a lot of sort of crap, useless research going on out there, which actually won't help anyone at all. Um, and I think that needs to be limited. Um, how you do that, I have no idea. Um, but I just think, oh, I don't even know how to put this into the right words. Um, I just think that the more knowledge we have right now and the more ways that we know how to apply that knowledge that we've gained, the better. I think people respond to actual scientific gained knowledge um, very, very well. And if that can help conserve some of these areas, which are basically our last strongholds of conservation, then it's really important that we focus on that research as, as a way to do that for us, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like this is interesting because uh, what we were talking about also uh, some time ago was the availability of this research. And one thing that came up was that mo many of the research actually does not end up uh, being available for the conservation managers. And that's also like a fundamental flaw in the system how we publish uh, science. Angry. Yeah. It really, like, really, really gets me because I'm like, what is the point? And having all this amazing research and making putting it behind a paywall like that's not what it's for like the whole point of this research is to, to actually have to, to cause a physical change in something that's happening to change policy to change management and like just to keep all of that research behind a paywall makes me very very angry it also is the it's an interesting one because to create that transparency you find that if it's coming from a scientific background it's less likely to do so like you said it, it ends up becoming restricted it becomes a university access rather than the lodge access but there are individuals who approach it from a more practical or say pragmatic way of doing things and are quite clever in blending their practical skill along with their science that allows it to be a little bit more transparent you find that those individuals become quite quite high up heavy hitters in the conservation field um, one of the one of the individuals that I I can think of the top of my head has to be Andre Ace. He's Dr. Andre Ace. He's a veterinary scientist, and his work happens to span all throughout Southern Africa, if not Central Africa. Gosh, the man is everywhere. Um, if I'm not mistaken, he was responsible for or played a played a key role in the elephant relocation in Malawi, where they did over 300 elephants in over a month or something, or just under a month. Um, so the man is very, very good at this sort of thing. And he does a lot of lodge management for one of the lodges in the Waterberg. And he's taken that blend of his scientific knowledge to create papers and thesis, and it does all these very, very interesting thesis around it. But at the same time, he uses his veterinary skills to get him in through the front door to work on the conservation in that area. So he is able to use the information that he's got and not have to send it out or sell it out to universities to keep that publishing on. And he's one of the very few examples that you get to see that happening. I think if that happened more often in, in lodges or in conservation areas or conservancies as a whole, I think you would see that there'd be a dramatic difference in the way people approach conservation. Because Phoebe's right. A lot of people come to these places and they do research that doesn't benefit the, the, the area, even if they are giving that information away. It 
doesn't necessarily promote or address the key issues that need to be addressed at this very moment in time. Yeah, thank you for that answer. It's very interesting to think about. What about, uh, or what would be your recommendation for people coming into South Africa for their very first experience, like safari experience? What would you recommend them to do? Maybe, maybe some places where they should go to or things they should look out for? Don't use the word safari. Yeah, that's <laughs> Do not use the word safari. Do not arrive at Johannesburg Airport dressed like you are about to go on safari. Be a normal person. Um, I think there are a few different ways that you could approach it. I think South Africa and Southern Africa as a whole is so diverse in its landscapes and its environments that you should try and make the most of that. As in, there isn't just one bush felt. There's the low felt, there's the high felt, there's whatever you want to see. I am very much a fan of reserves. I think national parks are amazing, um, but they're either oversubscribed with tourists driving around not knowing what they're doing, causing dangerous situations, or you're just going to miss stuff. If you don't know what you're doing, you're going to miss out a, a huge amount of it. So I'm really a huge fan um, of finding a reserve and maybe like look into it. Like there are a lot of crap reserves out there that that are just there to sell a tourist experience and aren't doing anything in terms of conservation they're not promoting research they're not doing anything for the wildlife they are a money-making machine so definitely do a lot of research into which reserves you might want to go to and take like learn as much as you can from the guide that you will get given i think it's great to go around with a guide especially your first time like lawrence and i never go to reserves anymore because we know what we're doing we drive around and we're basically two guides in a car guiding each other like that's something different but if you don't know what you're doing i think having a guide with knowledge who's willing to share that knowledge and willing to like open up this world to you is really really valuable i think from a practical point of view too just to look at a first timer who's never come to southern africa um Joburg isn't isn't scary Yes, don't, don't, yes, don't, be, don't be scared of Joburg. If you Johannesburg, right? Johannesburg, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. If you go, if you go <laughs> t- typical South African coming out there. If you go anywhere in the world, you can find yourself in a nasty place if you go to the wrong parts of the town. Mm-hmm. Just Johannesburg has a great reputation at the moment, if you know what I mean. So don't, don't be too afraid of it. Um, and then for the actual advice part of things, South Africa is huge. It is not a small country. You cannot travel across Africa in a day unless you are mad. So be careful where you choose to go. As Phoebe says, do your research, but also understand that some places, if Google Maps says it's going to take you two hours, it may take you eight or nine because there's no road there that's tar, you know, or there's potholes there that, or there's roadworks or there are things that are unforeseen. So knowing where you're going and knowing the, knowing the area is quite important in some ways. You know, if you want to get a, get in a car and drive from Johannesburg to the Lofalt to go to the Kruger, you, you're in for a bit of a drive. It's about a five, six-hour drive, not to mention you have to stop and you're going to have to pay for park fees and that the park only opens at certain times and those sorts of things. So, so know the area that, that, that you want to go to. Do your research on it. Um, set yourself a budget. Budgeting is very, very difficult when it comes to the bush because – the spectrum is very large. 
you can you can camp and you can do it on a very tight budget or you can spend so much money your eyes will literally bleed when you see the price that that comes from just one night's stay some of the some of the lodges that that are out there can go for their luxury suites and stuff can go in excess of 10 to maybe 20,000 pounds a night so you've got to be quite careful where you go and also remember that the most expensive doesn't necessarily equate to the best. It may have the luxury in the white glove service, but if you find a lodge or a place that offers you a really high quality engaged guide, you are, you are in for a, in for a win. So check the reviews. TripAdvisor is a great place to help mm. you out with that. Um, there's also a huge amount of um, South African tourism based companies that will help you with this sorts of thing. And they are, I mean, even for a small fee, you could even look at them planning something for you. If you have that within your, in a medium-sized budget and you're wanting to go somewhere, maybe get someone to help you help you with that. And I think Phoebe would probably be the best person to give you advice on mm-hmm. who you could look at, but she will have a couple of, couple of people that you could look at who definitely help you with that too. I think another really, really key thing is, as having worked with a lot of tourists, I think it's really important to actually lower your expectations, which is extremely difficult. Say if you're coming from the UK and you're going for like a 10 day, two week trip to South Africa to see wildlife, you will have spent a massive amount of money. And it almost feels like you need to see all those animals on your checklist to justify the money that you've spent. But unfortunately the bush isn't like that. And you might go wanting to see like, five prides of lions every day like believe it or not this is just a case in point we um i was working with some tourists in atosha which is one of the massive national parks in namibia it is an utterly unique place it is absolutely amazing and the first thing we see when we drive into the park is a female lioness with her two tiny little cubs like tiny 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 i was just i wanted to sit there all day i'd never seen anything so beautiful in my life and I'm like, that's amazing. Wow, 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 amazing. We then get to the camp that night and the guests are like, but we've not seen lions yet. I'm like, what do you mean we've not seen lions? We just saw the, the cubs this morning. They're like, no, we need to see male lions with like giant manes. And I'm like, oh my God, no, that is not how it works. Like you can go with these expectations and this, this um, tick list and like what you want to f- photograph, but you really need to go there with an open mind, an open attitude, and just take what the bush gives you. And it, it sounds really sort of like woo-woo and airy-fairy, but the energy that you put out there is what you get back. 100%. So if you go out there very much just embracing the learning opportunity and embracing what you can see, then you will get rewarded with the most amazing things. But if you go there with like, I need to see lion and I need to see elephant and I need to see like, hippo whatever else then you're going to be missing out on some of the most amazing things like there was another guest who um she'd been on her trip wrote back and she was like yeah it was amazing we saw a pangolin but we didn't see any other cool animals and i'm like what are you talking about like i have never seen a pangolin in the wild and i've been in this this world for like five years so just appreciate the opportunity as a whole I think I'm I'm very, mm. very like I'm very passionate about that, mm. clearly. Scrap the big five mentality. Scrap the big five. Big five is boring. If, you don't want to see that. It, it's awesome to see them. It is the dangerous game thing that we were talking about, but scrap the big five. It is 
a very small amount of an entire ecosystem that you're putting your attention onto. And because of that, it becomes a money-making scheme. And that's not what conservation is about. If you mm. truly want to go and experience a conservation-focused experience, don't go looking for places that just want to show you the big five. There are many places out there. I mean, prime example is Mashatu. Mashatu, or the Tuli Game Reserve, doesn't have the big five. So this is a, a classic example of a five-star lodge that's operating outside of the parameters of a big five environment. And it shows you some of the most amazing places and the most amazing things. And that's why so many people go back. Mashatu is one of the, the only lodges I know that has such a high repeat customer base as well as able to keep itself within the 70% and above occupancy rate throughout the year. And that's because it's a place that really focuses on more than just five animals out of the group. And that reflects in the guiding ability too. When guides are excited and enthusiastic about different aspects of the bush, rather than just seeing five animals, you find that it becomes a much more enjoyable experience. Mm. And if your guide is just rushing, uh, mm. as, as, the, as the coin phrase goes, the Ferrari safari, where you're just getting in a car, responding to where the, where the line is, driving as fast as you can, breaking all the regulations and rules of the reserve, just so you can see those lines, and then rushing all the way to the elephant and then all the way home, what have you achieved? Thank you, Lawrence and Phoebe. That was a fascinating discussion. And thank you for sharing your perspectives on conservation and uh, being a guide. And that's very very good advice also for uh, first timers who are going to South Africa or Southern Africa to experience the bush, not to a safari, but to experience the bush. As a um, first timer, uh, or I have never been, I also need to ask the naive question. What do you say then if not safari? You're going to the bush and you're or going, you're going on, on a game, game drive. drive. It's a game okay. drive. Yeah. <laughs> you go to the bush and when you go out you're on a game drive or if you if you really want to live life in, in the cool side of the fence you're going on a walk you're doing a trail <laughs> good to yes, know definitely thank you Lawrence and Phoebe do you have any uh, last words before we wrap up Ooh. oh I've got so many words I could talk about this for days I really think just if, if you are so fortunate to be able to get to be in these environments embrace it but don't pressure it just just embrace the opportunity as what it is and see what the bush gives you because it is such a healing place and it really does change your life 100 percent uh i couldn't have said that better myself so i'm not going to add anything more on that but if you are one of the or for the majority of people who will not be able to get to go and you feel like you're missing out, you don't have to. There are platforms out there that allow you to, to at least partake in, in, in what it's like and get to see the experience of being in the bush where you can interact with guides who will respond to you and it's free of charge. So um, I can help send that information through to you too so you guys will have that. But the, the bush is accessible wherever you are for whoever wants to learn. And it's that very premise that the bush is one of the greatest places in the world to be is if you're open to it, it's open to you and it is healing 100%. There's no doubt about that. You just got to be open to it. No, actually, in the corona times, as I understand, most of the reserves are not taking in any guests, especially the national park in South Africa. But there are options to go and experience the bush virtually. 
there is a platform called Safari Live. Am I correct? Yes. Yes. Safari Live. Yes. We we would watch yeah. that when we were in Cape Town. Like that's how much we love. Or like I would put that on like first thing every morning, and I would like yeah. just be making my breakfast or whatever and mm. watching Safari Live because for me it helped maintain my knowledge. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it's an amazing, amazing resource and such a good idea. So. Yeah, even if it just kind of like gives you an idea of what to expect when you go mm. on your first trip to the bush, I think it's 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 an incredible resource. Some of the sorry, Oli, some of the people on there actually were our instructors too. Mm. Yeah, I I do remember in Cape Town, you guys ran out of your Wi-Fi bundle in two days just because of watching <laughs> them. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, well, it's worth it. It's well, definitely worth it. Wild Earth will definitely do that to you. And there are some other places where you can just go and sit and view cameras. So yeah. uh, for if I'm working or I need to have study material, instead of listening to the sounds of a waterfall or nature, nature sounds or anything like that, I just go and put on one of those cameras and you just sit and have the sounds of the bush. Um, those platforms come off um, uh, a place called Africam. It would be africam.com. Um, and they were one of the competitors for uh, with Wild Earth. And they, Wild Earth and Africam have been around for quite a while. Wild Earth ended up uh, putting all their time and energy into Safari Live. And that's what, what what's turned into this massive thing that it is now. Um, Nat, Nat Geo even had their fingers in the pie there for a bit and were working with them and helping out. So Safari Live is definitely a place to go and check. I mean, it's one of the more reputable online virtual safari experiences of safari is a word that we should be using <laughs> but we also have to mention our uh our university's initiative of the the slow tv the moose migration so i also do that with work now if i want some outdoors feeling we have they call it slow tv uh, because it's just cameras out in the forest uh, so they're filming a moose that are migrating now in spring so you can oh, see so cool. reindeer, you... moose, and everything on um, the Swedish national television SVT. Yeah. They're live streaming. It's really, really nice. Some Swedish, uh, not safari then. <laughs> yeah. Swedish forest. Same <laughs> drive. But amazing. Uh, thank you one more time, Phoebe and Lawrence. And we will put all the links below that you can find. Uh, for the recommendations from Phoebe and Lawrence and also the Safari Live and other things that we've been talking about in this uh, episode. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Thank mm -hmm. you.